Hey everyone, I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Colbert, and we are teachers in Durham, North Carolina, but podcasters by night. We're kind of like the Batman and Robin. But not nearly as cool. Not nearly as cool as Batman. Hopefully we're a little bit cooler than Robin. I think that you're kind of the Batman of this duo. Okay. I think that you I have. Can, I can deal with that. You have the lower voice, and um, and you know I'm kind of like the you know the funny one that everyone yeah. kind of wishes would go ahead and die already. And you do like to wear tight sometimes. <laughs> I do. Maybe like to... when nobody else is not, looking. Not on the podcast. And I, you know, <laughs> I can I can just say I'm not wearing hockey pants. <laughs> That's how I introduce our guests onto the show in <laughs> my Batman voice. I was telling you one problem that I've been having. I actually had it with my mom last night because even though I've talked to my mom about this podcast over and over again, she still has no idea what the podcast is about. And she has not liked our page yet. And <laughs> she has not listened to the sound clip. And, you know, I was telling her that we were working on the pilot episode and she was like, and um, what is the theme of the podcast and i was like oh it's like like i've been telling you it's it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to to explain it takes a little while <laughs> and it's really awkward when you're explaining it to somebody that's your friend but they're not like a close friend they're more an acquaintance and they're kind of asking about it and they just sort of look at you like you're an idiot <laughs> um but i was having this kind of kind of conversation with somebody that was i don't even remember who it was and i had an epiphany moment and I told them it was about people who know what they want to do with their life and are actually doing it. And that's exactly what we're talking about. It's people who have found a career or a hobby or something that they, they've known that they want to do for a while and they've actually followed through and done it. Or embraced an identity. Um, so our first episode is about veteran teachers and we're going to hear from um, three teachers in Durham who have been teaching for more than 10 years. And that includes Brian, Holly, and Ketty. And this first clip is Ketty introducing herself and explaining how she got into teaching. And that's followed by Holly and Brian introducing themselves. So we hope you enjoy. Yeah, welcome to the drive. I probably always had education in my heart, um, but I wasn't in the classroom. So I'm originally from Chicago, born and bred Windy City girl, Go Bulls, um, <laughs> and I have a daughter, actually, that's what guided my path originally. I was attending the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I was in business because I thought, oh, I might do a good business person for me, and so I went back and followed um, the, corp- well, in the, the corporate threat. Well, in the meantime, I became pregnant, single parent. I was like, okay, I've got to take care of my baby, and so I decided to get a job in corporate. And so I worked as a project manager for Unisys Computer Corporation in Chicago. And I did very well in corporate. That was my thing. But outside of corporate, I was still mentoring kids within my church world and um, my community. I taught dance, um, directed choirs, um, tutored. I did all of that because I loved working with kids. It was my passion. Like I was always the one would grab everybody's kids on the weekend. You could sleep over, hang out. I'm going to have your kids. And parents would be like, here you go. <laughs> Take them. <laughs> Take them. And so I loved, you know, Monday through Friday corporate. But, you know, on the weekends, it was all about the kids. Um, my daughter, so while I was working corporate, Unisys Computer Corporation 
opened an office in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Raleigh and Maryland and Atlanta were one of the three cities that, or, well, Baltimore, Maryland, were one of the three cities I wanted to move to at some point. So a manager who used to work with me in Chicago was now in North Carolina. He called and was like, Caddy, I was wondering, I've got this opening. We need somebody who's bilingual, who speaks French. We're going to be doing international. And I was like, yes. And it's going to Raleigh, North Carolina is the state I wanted to be. And I was like, sure, no problem. My daughter went to live with her dad in California. So I was like, it's just me. So I packed up, moved, and I had never been away from Chicago, like to move, relocate. I had always lived in Chicago. In fact, I lived at home until I was one of those people who lived at home until I was 33. I would not move out of my parents' home to the point where they moved because we wouldn't move. They went and bought a house. So um, I said, you know, I'm going to grow up. And I, it was one of the big changes in my life. So I moved to North Carolina. I was working for Unisys here in Raleigh. I'm going back to follow my first, my really first dream, which is working with young people. I'm going to go into education. And I was like, this is the time. I was like, thank you. No, th you know, I'm not going to go. Took my severance package and enrolled at University of um, well, North Carolina Central University for English education, secondary education. Okay. I am originally from the Midwest. I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, um, which is a town of about 250,000 people. Um, and uh, I had a very... Um, privileged upbringing, um, uh, middle class, um, middle class life, uh, and very, just kind of not really aware of a lot of the stuff that I'm aware of now as a teacher, uh, like race and privilege and all of that stuff, which I'm sure, in the Midwest, like yeah, all the white people. Uh, well, <laughs> and actually like my high school was about 50% black and 50% white, oh. but, um, in my honors classes, it was about 80 or 90% right. white. Um, but I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I, uh, another important element of my upbringing was, uh, I was a very strong evangelical Christian starting about midway through high school. I mean, I'd been a Christian my whole life, but like I kind of took it to a different level, um, during high school. And, uh, that meant, Pretty quick. I had kind of always wanted to be a teacher, but then just knowing that I wanted to do something that helped people, like, kind of sealed the deal. And um, and it felt very natural from, like, you know, my junior year of high school, I did my career paper on uh, being a high school English teacher. And, um, you know, I went and observed teachers at other schools and, like, spoke to professors and stuff, and I was just so jazzed about it even then. Okay, my name's Brian O'Keefe. I work at Jordan High School right now. Mm -hmm. I teach at Jordan High School. I teach world history, um, AP government. I'm in the social studies department. Um, I live in Durham. I'm not from Durham originally. I, I'm from Pennsylvania. I was actually born in New York City. My parents are from New York City. Um, and then they moved to Pennsylvania when I was young. I spent a lot of time there growing up through middle school. My parents and I moved down here to Durham. I went to school down here for about three or four years. Then we moved back to Pennsylvania, so I've been kind of back and forth, and yeah. then I eventually real decided that I wanted to live here, and um, I ended up finishing college down here, and went to NC State, and um, I knew that I eventually maybe like want to go back to school, finish school, yeah. but I um, 
but I never, I, I didn't really think, oh, I want to be a teacher. You know what I mean? I, yeah. just, I wanted to study something that I enjoyed. Yes. Right. So when I came down here, I, um, and I've always been interested in history, but any history class I had ever had, it wasn't really so much about the history, even it was more about like the conversations you would have in class that always interested me. Um, the things you would talk about, you know, whether it were, whether, whether it was social issues or historical issues that led to social issues, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so those were things that I always liked. So I decided to go back to school and when I did, um, I decided I wanted to study history because I always liked my history classes, you know? Yeah. And I, and, and again, teaching was always kind of in the back of my mind. You know, I worked, when I was working here, I worked as a bartender for a while, um, ever Ruby Tuesday and believe it or not, <laughs> the, the Ruby Tuesday was actually like, people always laugh like that when I tell them I worked at a Ruby Tuesday, but this Ruby Tuesday was like, it was a bar. You yeah. Know? And, they, mm -hmm. and it was the one at Northgate Mall. I don't know if you know that one, but they've changed it since I worked there. But the bar used to be huge. Okay. And, um, and you know, so what you would get, what you'd get a lot of times is you would get like shoppers or, and especially around the holidays, like this time of year, you get a lot of like, husbands of shoppers yeah. you know, coming in and they're like <laughs> I oh, need a yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was and some of them would sneak down and then sometimes you would get employees from some of the other stores they would come in <laughs> they would come in and we had one time where a woman came in I probably shouldn't get off on this story but we had this woman come in and uh, her boss from her store she worked at one of the stores in Northgate Mall this was like 15 years ago so I don't remember the store or anything like that yeah. but she came down and she used to always come down and get a drink and one day she came down and her boss followed her down there and um, she had just left, but her boss came and said, was this woman in here, you know? And I was like, well, who are you talking about? I didn't really know what to do, but I was finally just like, yeah, she was. You know, she, she's drinking alcohol. And I was like, yeah, she was drinking alcohol. She had at least three drinks, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, you know, and so, but it used to be like a big party place. So Friday and Saturday nights would get really busy there. And I worked there for two years, but it's hard work, you know? And it's like, and it's not... It's not like, so you're like, oh man, this is beating me. I'm going to become a teacher. <laughs> yeah, right. It was kind of like that. Yeah. That, was, that was sort of how it was. It was, uh, I liked it. It was hard work, but it was also, you had to deal with a lot of crap. You know what I mean? So I did. I eventually said, well, so this I was just preparing you. <laughs> in, in a way it did, you know, it's, it's working with people. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you would talk to these people at the bar and I really did enjoy that part of it. You know, yeah. I just always liked being around people. So that's another part of why I got into teaching. I think it's because I've always just enjoyed being around people, you know, yeah. we didn't actually ask a specific question that led to this, but organically each of the teachers at one point mentioned some kind of ideal that they pursue in their education, uh, whether that's love or critical thought. Um, so what we're about to hear now is Ketty, Holly, and Brian specifically mentioning something that they hold as a core principle in their teaching. And in some ways they're similar, and in some ways they are unique to them as educators. My, my vocation, my calling to be a teacher is still really rooted in love. Um, and that's like where it started and just has always come from. And I remember talking to you about this before and, and it seemed like that first year of teaching was kind of the catalyst <laughs> for that major shift. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think there's kind of two questions embedded here. Like one, how did I become a teacher? Well, you know, always kind of wanted to be one, whatever. Right. Um, but I think the actually more important question for me is like, how did I become the kind of teacher that I am? And how did I become the kind of teacher who's going to stay at Hillside High School for 10 years and beyond? So, um, and like, how did I become a teacher who's also like an activist 
But literature, something about literature allows you to take a journey and be in different places. And so history is factual. Like you can't venture beyond the facts. You, you know, you could talk about them, discuss them, get in depth about them. But with literature, here's an opportunity to kind of delve into what an author is saying and kind of visit all these great places. And I already knew that young people were struggling with reading and writing. And so I was like, you know what, this is where I need to be. I think I sometimes am thought of as someone who teaches about conspiracy theories, but you're I don't really think you're definitely about thought that of it. I definitely thought, <laughs> and, I, and it's funny because like kids know this about me or think this about me, and they don't even know me. So like yeah. kids will come up to me in the hallway and ask me stuff. You know? Yeah, but I really don't think about it that way. Like I don't think of them as conspiracy theories. The things well, I they're talk not conspiracy about. theories. They're true. They're true. <laughs> so I like to think of it more as. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody who, um, like, number one... Providing I, different perspectives. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely what I think of it as. Like, I think of it as we have sort of a mainline, mainstream historical record in this country that we teach in public schools. Well, well, 9-11's, like, the one thing that students are always asking me about because it always comes up in class because it's a history, cl- it's history class, yeah. you know? And so... Um, so 9-11 is definitely... And they don't know anything about 9-11. They don't, yeah. yeah. And so, like, and I lived through it. And not yeah. only did, I li- did we live through it, but you know, I watched it happen on television live, yeah. you know. And so so I always explain to them sort of my experience around that before I even talk about it, you know, because I feel like I need to give them that context first, you know, because all they know is that planes were hijacked and that they got flown into buildings. But it's always amazing to me, too, that none of them know, like, any of the other information that wasn't put into like the main the mainline narrative that mm-hmm. we have you know four planes hijacked by 19 hijackers two flown into the trade center one flown into the, some of them don't even know that the pentagon guy hit that day you know mm-hmm. yeah they definitely don't know that one the, the one, one the thing yeah, yeah the one that crashed exactly yeah. or was shot down or whatever you know and so anytime i kind of like and if they do know the whole thing if i offer you know an alternative perspective on that and say well did you know that you know Building seven also fell in New York City that day, and no plane hit it, but it collapsed just like the towers did. Yeah. And they claim, and then official narrative says that it was due to fire. You know, just basic like a, a regular fire. You know, that was caused by debris falling or whatever. And you know, they don't know that. You know, and they also don't know that there are engineers out there who have you know formed group a group called Engineers for Truth, and that they've done a lot of research on the entire event and the way the buildings fell. How and hot the jet fuel how, burned. Yeah, whether jet yeah. fuel can melt steel and that, yeah. there, you know, there's evidence that, you know, there was melted steel and there was, um, and there were, and, and there were explosions that you can see when you look at the video very closely and there's video of one of the planes crashing into the towers where there, you can see the underbelly and it looks, and you can see that there's possibly something attached to the underbelly. Of, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there are all these, uh, there's, there's so much evidence out there that people have gathered. And I always like to tell them like, don't take my word for it. You know, why not just go look for yourself. So when I look at our schools and I say, um, they're, they're con- there's so much conditioning and programming. I really believe that. And, and not only that, but I think that I could like, back that up if I wanted to, you know, and, and have backed that up, I feel like, by, you know, whether we're looking at the curriculum and the way it's written or what's taught in school today versus what really happened, you know, what's mm-hmm. in the textbooks and what's not in the textbooks. And 
Um, you know, and, I, and that's why I feel like it's so important to teach students about critical thought because we don't have to just take on the people every time. A lot of times when I tell people I'm a history teacher, they say, oh, well, you know, I was never good at history because it's a lot of memorization. Well, that's not what history is it's to me. It's about stories. Yeah, it's about, it's about stories and it's about thinking about why things happened and talking about why those things happened and making sure that you take into account all the perspectives that there are. We did ask each of these teachers about what their lowest moment was in teaching. And in getting to that topic, almost all of them described some of the general obstacles and frustrations that arise as a necessary product of this profession. And so now we're going to hear from Ketty, Brian, and Holly about some of the harder things about teaching. Not the hardest things, but something that makes this job really difficult. I mean, I think the reality is that um, teacher morale at Hillside has never been um, amazing. And that's because, like, there are all sorts of attacks on um, our school that transcend, like, the budgetary ones, right? Like, Hillside was almost closed, you know, for bad test scores and, um, you know, has, like, uh, still has... Uh, the reputation of being like one of the most dangerous, scary schools or whatever. And, um, you know, that stuff's not true. Um, like Hillside is just a school and like any school and its students are like, just like any students. Um, and, but it is also like a, um, it's also a difficult place to come and teach like even before all the budget stuff started happening and you know and that's um again that's not because of the students it's because like there has always been a systematic devaluing of um schools that are you know primarily students of color as hillside is and um and so like really there's never been adequate resources um but uh I do think that, um, you know, I mean, again, teaching has never been easy. Like my first year, I almost quit at the end of it, you know, but just to have more and more attacks from more and more sides is, um, is of course not helping. It is terrible, you know? I mean, like, I literally know teachers, people who like couldn't not only, like, not only is their job, like, so hard every day, then they have to go work at Barnes & Noble or, like, get three roommates <laughs> in order to survive. Um, you know, I know, I know somebody who um, wants to be teaching at Hillside, but instead is working at Duke because he can't afford, he literally cannot afford to support his family on a teacher's salary. Um, you know, so it's hard work already, and then to not have that work valued financially um, is just terrible. And uh, I should mention in terms of, like, things, the question you asked before about, you know, what differences you saw, I think the biggest one for me, like, the one that really was like, this is terrible, this is a terrible decision, you know, was that, so when I started teaching, 
there were full-time mentors who worked to support teachers in their first three years. Um, and because Hillside had so many new teachers, there were three mentors in our building full-time. It was their full-time job. I met with my mentor at least once a week. Um, she did every sort of support for me that you can imagine, like classroom management, curriculum, emotional support like I cried with that woman so many times <laughs> she would bring me milkshakes you know I mean <laughs> like it was someone whose job it was to make give me what I needed in order to stay um and you know and you know in my second and third year she was still there you know when I didn't need her quite as much but it was you know her presence was still really crucial um and when they cut that program, when DPS couldn't afford to fund that anymore, I was just horrified because, like, that's the kind of thing that we lost, you know, right. um, which is like, you know, if you're trying to keep teachers, like, you're not going to do it if you take away that sort of support. And, it, you know, it was just replaced with, like, now teachers in the building are your mentor. Well, I can't do nearly as much for a first-year teacher as someone whose full-time job it was. So, um, yeah, so I think that, like, First year teaching has always been hard, um, not just at my school, but any school ever. And then when you also have a tax coming from other places um, and you're not getting paid enough, like, of course you're not going to stay. Like, I, I can't get mad at people who make the decision to leave. I get it. They're lazier now. You know, that drive to go places and find information in different places, they don't have it like that. And especially within the dynamics of literature and English, um, social media's ruined their writing. I mean, grammatically, oh my God, let's not even talk about that. A complete sentence. Um, it's amazing when I get rough drafts of memoirs now and I, I have to give the speech, which I never did before. Okay, social media language is not allowed in your rough draft, like unless it's dialogue, but it's not allowed. But how many kids use it? Like they don't understand punctuation, capital letters, because they don't use it. And so, and it, they're lazy. They just want to um, give you the bare minimum, a lot of them. And I remember when I first started teaching these kids, like always pushing themselves. Like not everybody, but you had the kids who really wanted to push themselves. Even your, um, your high achieving students, those who were listed as honor students, there was so many of them who just wanted more, you know. Um, and they never settled like that. Ms. T, is this okay if not? And I'm not saying they were great kids all the time, but they had this inner desire to do better. And now my honors kids, it's like this sense of entitlement, a lot of them. And so, I'm, you know, I, I'm an honors kid because the label says I'm honors. So this is honors work, right? <laughs> and you're like, no. <laughs> Let's try this again. And then, they, and then they argue with you. They'll argue with you a lot more. And I didn't have that before. So I think um, our kids right now are just very lazy. Um, and that concerns me. Because um, I use my classroom even to engage what's going on culturally and in the society, in, the, in our world, and sometimes they're clueless. Like they don't know, you know, what's going on in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you guys are going to become adults soon. Like this is this place right here where we're nurturing those skills to think, um, to analyze things, so that when you get out in the world, you're you're critical thinkers. You're listening to what people are saying. These future politicians and things. So you want people who are going to make a difference. And if it's not happening, if you're not hearing, if you're not willing to listen, if you're not informing yourself now, 
Well, what's going to make you an informative adult? Absolutely. You know, it's like just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. You know? And it's funny and it's kind of ironic <laughs> that, like, you know, there's that whole thing that, oh, I saw it on the internet and so it must be. Yeah, true. yeah. I had kids the other day who, well, no, not the other day. This is back when I was doing the Odyssey stuff. I told you how, like, I, like, daily would have a kid who is like, wait, is Poseidon real? Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a, <laughs> I was like, no. Well, I didn't say no. I tried to do the really PC thing. <laughs> I feel absurd, absurd talking about it. I'd be like, well, you know, like, this was a religion, and mm-hmm. that's what people believed was true. And yeah. just like all religions have their beliefs that some other people might find to be, you know, <laughs> far-fetched, to say the least. I was like, just like people today would say that, that Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or any of that would be... Like, you know, they'd call it into question. Mm-hmm. Like, there are people now who still believe in Poseidon, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm, a little wonky, but, you know, like, hey. <laughs> yeah. Which was way too complicated for them to understand. They're like, but no, really, like, is he real or not? <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that happening, yes. Yeah, but no, I had a kid who was like, um, <laughs> a kid who was like, but mermaids are real. Uh, I was like, no, mermaids are not real. And I had, like, three kids like, no, mermaids are real. There's a whole, like, video documentary on, on like, you know, they've seen, on, yeah, they've yeah. seen some YouTube they've video about, about mermaids <laughs> where they proved the existence of mermaids. And, like, they were, like, steadfast believers in mermaids. And yeah. I was like, I can't believe. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and that, that's, that's so often what we run into. And that's the problem, I think, is that they... I don't know if it's because so some of them aren't capable of anything other than asking you that question and then they're just waiting to hear your answer to it so they might not have even heard what you said you know right. what I mean yeah. and then they're just like okay whatever you just said but I didn't hear you say yes or no you know yeah. and that's the problem like that's yeah. what we should be teaching them to do is to think about it in the way that you explain them to explained it to them you know and it may be the PC response but that also is a way for you to kind of bring in these other perspectives and get them to, like you made an analogy you know you tried to compare it to modern religion and you said well you know think about these religions and it's really not different we moved out here so that he could start um at duke divinity school i was gonna and the plan was uh you know i was gonna be uh, a pastor's wife and um after his time at div school was done we were gonna go back to the midwest and i was probably gonna birth lots of children and all of that um and uh you know so i came into my first year at hillside just really sure that I had the answers, um, like kind of freedom writer style, you know, just like I, you know, I got this little bit of savior mentality going on, maybe, and um, within three days, probably, I was like, whoa, I do not got this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I really, I came in with this idea that like what my kids needed most was to like have a relationship with Jesus like that's what I had believed was like the most important thing that anyone could ever have um and then I saw kids like but I you know I'd never known anyone who like didn't have breakfast or like needed to read beyond the like fourth grade level when they were freshmen in high school and um or like just needed a hug because no one had given them a hug in days or weeks or whatever and um and that just drastically changed uh, my perspective. And so pretty quickly I realized that I knew nothing. Um, I mean, thankfully, like, 
um, you know, again, like, I think a big part of the story is, like, about everything being rooted in love. And, like, I really, like, I just wanted to keep, you know, loving my students. And, but what that ended up meaning was not, like, okay, I have the information that I will impart upon you. It really became, like, man, I need to listen and, like, just watch and see what is going on so I can understand the dynamics of, um, you know, uh, of the school, of the public school system in general, um, you know, of, you know, a, a, a culture that I knew precious little about. I didn't understand racism. I certainly didn't understand systematic racism that happens in our schools and impacts our schools. And so I just kind of like shut up and like listened and watched and, um, and also like, worked till you know seven or eight o'clock every night planning lessons from scratch and um i was uh you know a lot of really hard stuff happened you know classroom management i didn't know anything um about how to actually you know other than like you know well i'm being nice to you i don't understand why you're not being nice to me you know and um so there was a lot of chaos um and that was something that like I was not willing to admit to pretty much anyone which I think was a big mistake like I really really didn't want to talk about it <laughs> um and so I just like kept it in those four walls um you know I may have talked about it with my husband some but even that I don't think I really like I just repressed and repressed and repressed so much stuff um and I mean it didn't help that um like the school as a whole is pretty chaotic at that time. Um, and, you know, so there was just a lot of like mismanagement and, and hard stuff. Um, but even within like my four walls of my classroom, it was just like, I mean, it was going better than a lot of first year teachers that I've seen, but it was not going well. And I felt like pretty much like a constant failure, which was not something I'd ever experienced in my life before. Um, I will never forget uh, my mentor, Mary Beth Breaker, who is uh, one of the reasons that I even still exist at Hillside. I really don't think I would have made it past my first year without her. Um, but one day she sat me down and she said, Holly, you've always been good at things, haven't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, this is going to take longer. And that's among the best advice I've ever been given. And I try to pass that one along all of the time because... Um, yeah, it was just true for me. Like I, um, thought I had all the skills and talents that I needed and oh man, I did not, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I just kind of kept repressing this stuff and, uh, I, <laughs> I'll never forget in May of my first year of teaching, something happened in the hallway one day. It wasn't, it wasn't related to like my clap, like my, my kids, I wasn't there, but I came back to my room and you know how like, the, the glass in schools has the, like, safety stuff yeah. on it so that it can't actually shatter. Well, someone had, like, punched or hit or something the glass in the window beside my door. Mm -hmm. um, and it was all, like, shattered within the, right. the safety stuff. And it just felt like the biggest metaphor <laughs> for my soul <laughs> in May of my first year of teaching. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and the, the biggest part of the problem at that point was that I didn't understand that the problem wasn't 
my students. Because what it was feeling like at that point was that, um, like, just every everything that was going wrong in my classroom felt, like, really personal. Yeah. It felt like, you know, every time a student misbehaved that it was, like, really personal to me. Um, and that was, like, the biggest mistake in my mindset at that time was that I didn't understand that it was not, in fact, my students, that it was... The problems were systematic, that they were bureaucratic, um, that they were, you know, related to a whole lot of stuff happening outside of school, and that they were mine. I mean, I, you know, I knew I wasn't doing a good job with classroom management, but I didn't, at that time, I wasn't sure I believed that, like, it could be better, mm -hmm. necessarily. Uh, so I went back for a year or two, and my husband made me promise that if, um, it wasn't better by semester that I would quit. Um, and it just was, you know, yeah. it wasn't perfect, but part of it was that I had um, under started to understand that it wasn't the kids. Um, and part of it was I started to do, uh, really in my first year too, but uh, moving into my second year, a lot of reading and really just trying to understand um, the system in a way that I'd never been taught about. You know, last year we had the murder and I had Tiara in class, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I think about like the most awful things I know of that happen or like low points that was, and it was weird because it was during spring break, so it never really had a chance to, yeah, kind of there's no processing, yeah. yeah. And so that was weird about it too because it just that also just kind of went away, yeah. And I felt like you know, if this had been, I also, well, there's so much more to it because I feel like if it had been another student maybe like it would have gotten more attention or yeah but it was a student from a certain demographic and so yeah I felt like in a way that made, it didn't make it okay at all but it just sort of made people maybe a little not be as concerned about it yeah so for, for long. those people who, who don't know this is the the student who um she was lured off campus by an ex-boyfriend mm -hmm. they walked a few blocks away during lunchtime um and he killed her behind uh like his old house and and apparently he like wrote his like name on the or like his like instagram name or something mm -hmm. like else. i don't know if he did that when when he killed her or if it was already on there yeah but um i think they yeah they came that. back to the school and Washed his hands and got picked up that day by his mom, and and they found her body a couple days later. Can you share a little bit more about your your student teaching experience since you? Oh, so I had my first suicide yeah. in my student teaching experience, and I remember, oh my gosh, coming into class one day, and I had the greatest because I taught all tenth graders, and so that year I had first period planning, and I had second, third, and fourth period with 10th graders. That's crazy. Like 10 years ago, I still remember my schedule, right? Okay. <laughs> and I remember so vividly coming to school and my mentor teacher, Eli C., walked into the classroom and I'm preparing because I'm on and I'm getting my things up and getting the room together and I see him and his face is completely red and he was like, Anika killed herself last night and I just stopped because I had never experienced suicide like you know you hear about it you see movies about it but the reality like this is a child that I had just seen the day before like she was in my class we were laughing talking and now she's gone 
And so as a student teacher, you know, the shock of it all, because now not only is my day disrupted as far as being able to teach a curriculum that day, but now I have to be there emotionally for all the students who are going to come in who have been close to Anika since elementary, middle school, who were sitting, going to ask those questions why, who were going to break down. Who, and so the rest of the day, I had become this support to, my, to all these students. And I think because, um, which also makes, you know, helps me to understand my calling even more, because I realized that as a mother, I had those maternal skills that were necessary to, you know, give kids some comfort where I could, just be a listening ear in the other place, you know, where I needed to be, or just to stand there. You know, if somebody was angry and we provided paper for them to, you know, kind of doodle on and do things to kind of express what was going on, but it was the hardest. And I went to the services. Um, I wanted to be there with my students. I wanted to stand with them. And it was a beautiful service, but it was just one of those moments in my life where I think, Wow, I mean, suicide. Before you even start to, like, these, this is the reality of what you're coming into. Kids have, they come with so much into your classroom. So how are you going to make what you're teaching them real when they may have other issues that they're just not even, you know, paying attention to what's going on? Yeah, I, I don't think I've had any, you know, again, I don't know that I've had, I mean, there was this one time where I had a fight in my classroom. I've had one fight in my classroom. And I, at the time, it really bummed me out because I had never... This was just like two, maybe three years ago, I think. Yeah. And um, three years ago. And it was the first fight ever in my classroom in like nine years, you know. And I mm -hmm. always felt like... And I'd always heard about fights in other people's classrooms and stuff like that. And I knew they happened. And I knew it could happen in mine, too. But yeah. I always kind of prided myself on the fact that it had never right. happened yeah. in my classroom. Yeah. You like to think that you've created a climate where it's not possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so that kind of smashed that a little bit. Class was ending. Um, and this student had fluids in his mouth and the fluids came shooting out of his mouth and literally just smacked me on the side of my face. So my immediate thought is here's a student who just spit at me and inside me, I was what my kids are, emotional. And so my response was to backhand them. <laughs> so I'm like, you're not going to spit at me. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, the moment I backhanded him, you know, he kind of like grabbed his face and he was like, you know, Miss T, I'm so sorry. And I was just, I left the room like immediately because I was like shocked at what had happened. And I went and found at that time my team lead, um, Mr. Brosnan. And I was like, Graham, I can't believe it. I just smacked a teacher. He's, I'm a student. He's like, what? Yeah, so I'm telling him what happened. He's like, oh my gosh. He's like, okay, calm down. Okay, let's calm down. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. This is not what I signed up for. I'm a teacher. I care about students. I love them. Why did I slap the kid? Why did I smack the kid? And of course, you know, by now I'm just like crying. And so we go get administrators and because um, I'm thinking, for sure, I've heard about these things, these stories where teachers have, you know, engaged with the student, and, of course, they're terminated immediately. And I was thinking, um, this is not what I wanted, the difference I wanted to make in education. I never wanted to lay hands on a student. And I remember speaking to the administrators at that time, and they were like, okay, so what happened? And I told them what happened. And they were like, self-defense. They were like, go home. It was a Friday. They were like, go home. Don't even think about it. 
Have a great weekend. See you on Monday. And I'm thinking to myself, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm not thinking about it at all on the uh-huh. weekend. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I am just traumatized. Like, I'm driving off campus. I am literally called my pastor because I was that distraught. And I called my pastor, and I was like, this is what happened. And, and you know, my pastor is a little bit... Um, I just, he's a little bit, he's from Brooklyn, New York. So <laughs> he was like, so he spit at you and you smacked him. Okay. All right. So what's the problem now? <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not what I should be hearing from my pastor. But, you know, we talked about it. He was like, you know, you, of course, then my faith is like, you know, you repent, you're sorry. And I really was because that, that's not what I signed up for teaching. I just, I didn't know how it's, number one, how is I going to face that student on Monday like, how is that student going to respect me? Is that student going to be fearful of me and be able to take what I give them and realize that it wasn't intentional, that moment? You know, and one of the great things about that weekend is that the mom, the student's mom emailed me. And the student's mom was like, I'm so sorry for what happened to you. And I thought for sure, like, she was about to read me a new one. And, like, I'm suing you. I'm suing Jordan and everyone. And she was like, um, I don't know how you do what you do. She was like, and I, I apologize for my son for what happened. And literally, like, everything just went away. Holly is a big activist in the North Carolina teaching community at the local level in Durham, but also as a state. And she was part of the Moral Monday movement. It was a movement that fought for public education and fought against racism and poverty. That was around when the Moral Monday protest started in Raleigh to kind of combat what the legislature was doing. Um, And I I missed the first couple. And then um, when I finally got down to Raleigh to see it, uh, I was just really moved by it. Um, I think, again, because um, like this, this is where my faith has landed, right? Like it's it's a, a faith rooted in social justice and love and hearing Reverend Barber like preach about that was just like very inspirational for me and so um after going once to moral monday i was like man like i i'm feeling this like on my heart and soul and so uh, a week or two later i decided that i was going to participate in the civil disobedience that they were leading and actually get arrested um and I wore a shirt that said public school teacher to, so that um, it was clear why I was doing that. Um, and uh, I wrote a statement that I actually got to um, speak on the stage um, at Moral Monday and uh, that later got published in the News Observer and um, different stuff like that. And uh, that was an amazing and important experience in my life. Um, and, uh, I spent, you know, only about three hours in jail with, uh, probably the most jovial crew of (laughs) 85 other, like, mostly older folks that I had gotten arrested with, uh, and we just talked about, like, dogs and gardening and stuff for three hours. It was, like, the least, uh, you know, whenever my kids ask what jail is like, I'm like, "Mm, I don't actually know the answer to that question. Um, but, uh. And, like, when all of this went public and, like, a little bit viral, um, the Free Miss J hashtag was a popular one. Um, 
but the feedback was really amazing and I heard from teachers like all around the state and the country who were like really moved by that and you know part of the reason I mean the biggest part of the reason that I did it was because of the impact all these laws were having on my students and I just wanted to make sure I had done everything I could to like combat that um and then also like when I think about the morale of teachers in North Carolina like teachers feel attacked and they feel scared to talk about it. You know, we don't have a state, you know, we're a right to work state. So um, union is an especially bad word here. Um, and um, there are teachers who are scared to speak up about everything. And if there is one thing I have learned in my 10 years and in the increasing activism uh, of my teaching career, it's that you have to speak up and that it works, <laughs> you know? So, um, I, um, yeah, that was a very proud moment for me, and um, it's, I mean, you know, little 22-year-old Holly from Illinois coming to, <laughs> coming to Hillside, coming in the doors of Hillside for the first time, like, I don't know how much she would even recognize the person. And there's, you know, again, there's still that love thing that comes all the way through, but, um, yep. It's a whole different world than I ever thought I would be living. George Yamazawa used to come to my second period English class every day and he'd be stoned high out of his mind, you know, and so we'd have to call an administrator or he'd come to class with a t-shirt that had a picture of weed on it or he would um, come to class and just like argue with you. That was just his thing. He was going to argue. He's not going to be engaged. And, um, I remember having this conversation with George, like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, why are you doing it? I don't know. I'm going to make, sell t-shirts and do whatever. And he did. He had a business. He was selling t-shirts, among other things. But <laughs> <laughs> he did have this business. And I thought, you know, you really, you, you, know, you really need to focus on education. But George was just not involved in education. He just did not like it. And learning was not his thing. And so he got kicked out. He got sent to Lakeview expelled long-term for having, you know, weed on him, large quantity. And so he went to Lakeview, and Lakeview is an alternative school here, and it was just challenging for him. And he tells the story because he'll tell you himself, like, after finding out when he returned to school. Um, but the story about being at Lakeview. So he goes to Lakeview, then he returns. After a year at Lakeview, he returns, and he says, we're having this conversation one day. I'm like, George, you know, where you been? You know, he's like, man, Miss T., I was messed up, but I'm getting it together now. I was like, are you sure, George? And he was like, yeah, no, I'm going to get it together now. No joke. George was, like, taking classes online. George was going to see teachers. He was determined to graduate. And George did graduate. And we were like, oh, George graduated. Great job. But it wasn't, that wasn't the click for us. It was like, okay, George came back. He sat down. He says he remembers being at Lakeview thinking, this is not the place for me. I need to do better. And he had a sick grandfather at the time who wasn't doing well, and he wanted to do better. He said his grand, he, they were disappointed in him, seeing him in this place. And, um, and so George um, decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with my life. So that wasn't it that clicked for me. What clicked for me was that when George said he was going to do it, he did it. And George went from beyond just graduating high school to now George is reciting and doing poetry, he's published, and he's traveling internationally. And George Yamazawa sat in a classroom in my student teaching experience, and I, along with other teachers, thought, hmm, this kid right here is not going to make it. 
And sometimes we're going to have that experience with kids throughout their, their time in school. And when it clicks for them, isn't going to happen in front of us. It might happen outside, but still plant the seeds in them so that when they get outside, okay, here we go. You know, they've got it in them. And I think for George, one of the key things he said is that people would still keep, you know, it wasn't like we gave up on him. We'd still keep teaching him things. People worked with him. They were willing. He talks about Mr. Albright here who worked with, you know, getting him to help him get published. He was writing poetry while he was here at Jordan. And now it's this poetry, it's that writing that he started right here, those skills here at Jordan, that now have him internationally, you know, going places. You know, he's at the, you know, he's performed at the White House. He's been in other continents and he's motivating kids now. So this is circular. So for me, that's always one of my stories because I just remember him and I could have fallen into that hole of teachers like, okay, just give up on a student. You know, mm -hmm. when they look like they don't want to do it, focus on the ones who do. Don't worry about that one. But you still, even if they're not, you don't let them take over your class, but you still keep pouring into it because you don't know when the click, when that light switch is going to go off for them. My proudest moments are mm -hmm. when a student, even if they just pass me in the hallway and say something like good about the class that they were in, you know, yeah. you might not have them anymore or, and it even happens with students that are in my class now. It's like when they come to me and say like, oh, I miss your class or, you know, like, oh, I wish I was in your class again. You know, I miss that. You know, that. That that's a proud. When a kid comes to you on a B day, it's like, I missed your class. Wow, you saw me yesterday. Right. Yeah, right. See you tomorrow, dude. Well, the weirdest thing about it is that a lot of times, it sometimes I mean, a lot of times it's students who failed the class. You yeah. know what I mean? That is weird. Yeah, yeah. They'll come up to me and they failed the class, and they're like, you know, I missed your class. I'm thinking, hey, you didn't pass, did you? You know, <laughs> um, and so I don't know what that means, but what I think it means is that they remember it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they didn't just go in there every day and then the next year forgot they even had my class. Like there mm -hmm. must have been something about it, you know, that they remember or that they enjoyed. And it couldn't have just been one day. Like it had to have been a consistent, I think, I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel like that might, must be it, you know? Yeah. And then, and it also happens with students who are now in college. Like I have mm -hmm. a student who came to visit me last week, you know, the week before the break. Um, two students actually from that same class and they're one goes to Carolina one goes to William and Mary and they came back and they just wanted to come and see me we've talked now about how these teachers came into their profession their victories and their failures and their ideals and how all those things intersect and then we asked them if they were transported back to their 20s would they do this all over again here's their answer I do. I do. For multiple reasons. Like, some of it is about retirement. <laughs> I'll be like, I have a whole bunch more years. Um, I do, but I miss the excitement of being young. Like, you know, like when you, the idealism you have, when idealism you have in your mind, when you come out of college, like, okay, I'm ready. I'm excited. Um, and I'm still, you're still easily shaped by what's going on. You know, it has influence. Like the older, when you get into it, as you're, when you're older, you kind of set in your ways in certain things. And so, have being excited about learning new things isn't quite the same. Mm -hmm. 
you know. And so when I see younger colleagues come in and they're like, oh, you know the da 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 program or how did you? I'm like, no. <laughs> and then, oh, it's nothing. Let me show you. And I'm thinking, what? That is a lot of something. But, um, you know, or just new ways to try to teach. And my goal is always just, you know, I think the older you get, you're like, oh, I'm just going to stick with this way and do it this way. And you can't. I think if you start younger, you just have this energy and this excitement. Like, life is always changing. And so you got to be ready for the new stuff. When you get older, you kind of get set in your ways. Like, well, okay, I might try that new thing. I'm not too sure about that one. I'm not really crazy about that one. And so that's the part I miss. I miss that variety. I miss the excitement of being young. And maybe that's what keeps me young because I keep trying to hold on to that. I don't want to <laughs> let it go. I was like, I want to be young and into education and do stuff. And that, there's just a different camaraderie with younger teachers than there are with older teachers because, you know, you guys can act crazy and do stuff. At my age, people are like, did she just do that? <laughs> did she just say that? You know, so. If you could go back to, you know, being um, 24 or 25 or however it was when you kind of got started, would you do it again? Yes. Yes? Are you just saying that? No, I, I would. <laughs> I would. I enjoy it. Like, yes. I love teaching. I really yeah. do. I love it. Like, there are a lot of obstacles and there are a lot of things that are not always fun about it. There are a lot of things that are a pain in the butt, but, you know, I, I feel like I still like getting up in the morning and going in and doing it, so... I, I think I would do it, yes. Do yeah. I dream about doing other things? Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. I dream about doing other things, and I'm not, and, and maybe one day I will. So I suppose if you were to flash back to being that fresh old teacher from mm-hmm. Iowa, you would definitely do it again. <laughs> <laughs> would there be any hesitation? Um, no, although I'm very glad that. Um, I don't ever have to live through my first year of teaching again. <laughs> like, really out of all of my life experiences, including a divorce and, like, other stuff, like, the one that I least <laughs> want to live through again is my first year of teaching. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, what I learned, like, the biggest takeaway from my first year of teaching, personally, was, um, like, I had just lived a life where I had never taken risks. And I had never pushed myself outside of my comfort zone. And, like, if there's one thing I regret in my life, it's that. It's that period of, like, the first 22 years of my life where I just didn't push myself outside of my comfort zone. Um, And, you know, my first year of teaching, I can't even describe it as being pushed outside of my comfort zone. I can really only describe it as, like, being picked up by my ankles and, like, hung upside down and, like, shook for a year outside of my comfort zone. Um, But that year just taught me, like, the value of pushing myself. And and that is a lesson I hold very near and dear now, that, like, sometimes the most important moments in your life are the most uncomfortable ones. And... um, I don't know. Yeah, I really take that lesson with me all the time now, and it informs the way I live my whole life. And I didn't choose it, but I feel really blessed that it chose me. I would say my advice would be that, you know, the best thing you can do is, is, and I really do believe this, is you have to be yourself, and you have to be willing to 
be adaptable. And so that would be my advice is if you don't feel like you're able to be adaptable and to, um, you know, and, and if you feel like you can't be your, be your true self in the classroom or, and just, I would say this to anybody who's going to be like work anywhere though, I think, but like teaching especially is like, you have to be yourself and you have to be able to be adaptable. And that would be my advice. I could probably go on about that, but, um, I think those are the two most important things. Okay. And make sure that you like it because, and you almost have to love it because if you don't, you're going to be miserable, you know? Like, and if you feel like after the first three or four years that you're not like enjoying it, you should go do something else, you know? If your daughter wanted to go into teaching, what would you say? Um, she would make a great teacher. Um, I would tell her that you're not going to change kids every day. Um, so don't come in expecting to do that. Don't, because if you do that, you, you've ruined it. Um, come in and give what you've got to give um, and be hopeful. Be open to those who want to get more from you so you're available to them. But um, don't expect to change everybody. Don't, I mean, don't even expect to have change happen right away, because it might not. George Amazon who doesn't change till after you leave or you might have oh my gosh Mitch or the Bass kids who never changed and left here and ended up arrested and through the system and I mean you did everything you're supposed to do so I would tell her I said it's a great thing you, she would make a great teacher but I tell her just be mindful don't expect to make a difference all the time this might not happen Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to our first episode of Drive. Special thanks to Ketty, Brian, and Holly for letting us interview them. I'd like to thank my cousin Matt Ladner for all of our logos and beautiful graphics. I'd like to thank my beautiful wife Brittany for being patient with us as we recorded on the kitchen table, and for making us tea, and for making us snacks, as well as guest starring in our preview of this first episode. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at drive underscore podcast. Please go to our website, drivepodcast.com. You can subscribe via Stitcher or iTunes by clicking on their designated buttons. You can also help Drive to Grow by clicking the donate button on our website or just by inviting your friends to listen and subscribe. If you have a suggestion for a new episode or likewise would like to be interviewed, you can email us at suggestions at drivepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and keep your eyes open for new episodes.